I'm pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Zenner's James Salter. James, a long-time fund manager at Polar Capital, set up Zenner with David Mitchinson three years ago. That partnership of one value and one more growth-focused investor has turned out to be a case of excellent timing. With interest in Japanese equities reviving since, the fund has started strongly and grown to around £360 million of assets today. The team have also just launched an income strategy. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, before we dive into your, your career and how you came to set up uh, Zenor, um, as I said, Japanese equities are seeing a bit of a renaissance this year, mm-hmm. uh, at least in terms of interest amongst yeah. UK investors. Yeah. I suppose, you know, wh- why is this time different from the many uh, false dawns uh, we've, we've had before? I think one of the, the biggest differences, uh, Jeremy, has been mm. that the foreign investor has not driven the recent market uh, performance. So we've actually had a stealth bull market since really about 2012, Mm. when the market hit uh, the lows of um, eight to 10,000 on the Nikkei. And the foreigner was certainly involved in the early days, the first three or four years, he put in $300 billion, but he proceeded then between about 15 and 2018, 19 to take out all of that money. But actually the market's ascent has been driven very surreptitiously by domestic investors. And by that, I mean the corporates themselves. So classic mm. bull market indicators, you know, from people like Ben Graham and um, Warren Buffett that, you know, buying, if you find companies buying their own shares, that's a really, really good sign. So that's that's one difference. The other okay. difference... So there hasn't, it hasn't just been driven by a flood of foreign capital, basically. It, 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 it hasn't. But the other main difference is that the Corporate Governance Code and the Stewardship Code, which were introduced under Mr. Arbe in 2013, have continued to make ground mm. uh, in terms of diffusion to, of, of, of the gospel, so to speak, to, to individual companies to do the right things to look after shareholders. And that has then really had um, a further exocet put underneath it from the Tokyo Stock Exchange, who you know have been uh, keen to find or highlight that 50% of companies trade below book. They need to raise productivity in Japan. They need to take that price to book over the next three to five years to above one. They need Mm -hmm. to look at their cost of capital, weighted average cost of capital versus their return on invested capital. And I think that combination with a very, very potent activist market in Japan, we've seen the number of activist events in Japan at all-time highs at the moment, do you that, think that's been the key change more recently? I think that's been one of the key changes. And, and, and it hasn't just been activists, private equity activists, hedge fund activists. It's been very much driven also by domestic activists, mm. also um, foreign soft activists and engagers such as ourselves. And, and there's a big difference. We can talk about that later between an activist and an engagement house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Um, maybe before we, we go into all that, maybe we'll, we'll step back a bit and ask, yeah. you know, how on earth did you get involved in Japanese equities in the first place? I was studying for a postgrad at School of Oriental and African Studies mm-hmm. in Japan Area Studies in 1988. And um, Japan was flavor of the day. And mm. I think I wrote my dissertation on the Japanese economic miracle, which is one of the great reverse indicators, um, because it, it, it promptly began to collapse over the course of the 90s with a debt deflation bubble. Anyway, I I applied for some fund management uh, jobs and I got a couple of offers, one from 
Mercury Asset Management, which is now BlackRock, and the other from Foreign and Colonial, and I went uh, for the Foreign and Colonial option. Yeah. And then I think you, you joined uh, Martin Curry, yeah. um, which has now seen some industry consolidation itself. Exactly. And, and in a way, that, that's where your connection with your, your partner, David, begins, right? Maybe it, 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 it sort of begins there. Um, obviously, David is a generation younger than I am. Yeah. His father used to broke to us. So David's father was a well-known economist, um, mm-hmm. had his own economic think tank, and then went into academia. And I'd kind of known, well, David in those days in 92 would have been... I'm guessing, you know, still in short trousers probably. Uh, but um, I, I bumped into him in the early days of Polar and we nearly gave him a job at Polar, to be honest. Yeah. One, for one or two reasons, things just didn't work out at the time. Mm. Okay, well, so on Polar, you know, after Martin, Martin Curry, you worked at Schroeder's and then you joined Polar Capital yes. on, basically on day one, right? Uh, I, mean, I think it was about week six. Okay, week um, six. Yeah, something like that. Okay, can you can you talk about that a bit, what, what that was like in the early days? Yeah, it was a tremendous opportunity for me. It was set up by two um, former Henderson tech managers, Brian Asher Russell and, and, and Tim Woolley and John Mansell as the COO, backed by Caledonia. They very much took a, um, a punt on me in the early days because I don't think the intention was to expand the fund management group outside technology. Okay. Um, they were incredibly welcoming. Um, they really, you know, I owe them everything for the development of my sort of more entrepreneurial career um, post-2001. And it was a great place to work, Polar. It's a fantastic organization. Yeah. And was there an element of, you know, wanting to do your own thing a bit? You know, well, I, I suppose, I, I suppose you're do, at Polar, you're very much doing your own thing if, if you're a, um, an affiliate or a satellite fund management outfit there because they give you an economic interest. So it's effectively a, um, a pretty entrepreneurial culture, culture. So setting up Zenor wasn't particularly difficult for me. And it wasn't a, a, a kind of um, Damascene conversion to being entrepreneurial. I think, you know, all of us who were involved in Polar in the early days took a considerable risk and and it worked out um, with a bit of luck and some very good performance from, you know, some of the core managers. Yeah. Okay. And your fund at Polar, you know, was a strong performer mm. for, for a long time after setting up, but mm. then through, went through a weaker period yeah. um, in the middle of the last decade. I mean, I suppose, how did you respond to that at the time and, and how have you reflected on it since? I, I mean, obviously a lot of ref- reflection. I mean, I have to say, from Polar's point of view, they did absolutely everything right. From my own point of view, um, in retrospect, there were some mistakes I made. Um, I, I think the stock selection um, between about 2014 and 2018 was nowhere near as good as it had been between 2001 and 2013. The second point, Jeremy, was that value was very much out of favour and we were a, very much a value house. But I think it's it's, it's fair to say that for the first time in my, my career in 35 years, I dropped the ball for three years. And, you know, I've been very open about that. I've stuck my hand up and I've said, you know, these are the mistakes I've made. And one of the crucial mistakes I think I made was, despite it being a, a growth market, I didn't run my winners for long enough. I, I identified a lot of really interesting value and GARP situations, but those GARP situations were sold far too early. And obviously during quantitative easing, they went to much higher multiples, but certainly we or I could have stayed around in those investments for a lot longer. That was one of the first mistakes. And then the second, you know, second issue is, um, you know, down to the um, uh, the value aspect. I mean, yeah. It was such a, a growth market in those days that um, that knowledge base that I have of having visited eight to 10,000 companies in my career 
that intellectual property value was worth effectively zero because people were focused on 30 to 50 names globally, which Japan um, you know, had a very similar situation. And, and, and that knowledge base on a lot of uncovered companies was, was just not relevant. Yeah. Post um, the end of QQE and the beginning of inflation two years ago, mm. that has become increasingly relevant. Okay. That's, that's an interesting point about running your winners because that's mm. kind of, you know, mm. the concept's not quite anathema for a value yeah. manager, but there's a lot of focus on, you know, selling stocks once they get to your perceived fair value, isn't yeah. it? Um, I think that's what David has brought to the party. I mean, yeah. I was always quite traditional and f- focused on sort of EV, EBITDAs, P ratios, price to book. And I think David has brought a, a more judicial um, approach to some of these GARP stocks, looking at free cash flow, yield to enterprise value, looking at some DCF models, looking at EB, EBITDA, exit multiples, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I think my job with David has been to say, look, um, I'm happy to evolve the process, but at the same time, and I'm happy to run some of these winners to 20, 25 times, but I don't want to hold them to 50 times like you might have done in your former houses. Right. So <clears throat> the Damascene conversion has not been from either of us, but it's been a gentle recognition of our strengths and weaknesses. And I think my strength is value, balance sheets, and David's strength is very much on the GARP side. And I think he has moved very much from a growth deep growth manager to what I'd call a growth at a reasonable price. And I think that is kind of what we were doing at, say, Martin Curry between 92 and 97 very successfully. And that's really what we're trying to recreate. Okay. Um, You know, we'll come on to that more, I'm sure. But can can you take me a bit from, you know, leaving Polar, setting Zeno, getting up in touch with David? You know, how did that happen, basically? Well, I I, I was obviously bound by um, uh, Polar's um, handcuffs and uh, I, I was sort of out of communication really for, for mm. 18 months. I was able to set up the company. Um, the uh, CEO very kindly let me set up the company, um, Zenor, in six months after I set up, but I wasn't allowed to approach any clients till the following December. So I had a you know, time out. I, I did another channel swim. Um, did lots of swimming the English Channel. There, swimming yeah. the English Channel. Uh, lots of different things. Spent a lot of time with my youngest kid. Mm. And, you know, generally took quite a relaxed approach to to when I'd be able to uh, compete. And and we started off very, very small with, with Zeno. We started with just $10 million. Yeah. Uh, that actually and was... And did, did, did David come into it by, you know, by chance or um, what was there? Honestly speaking, Jeremy, um, he was out of a job mm-hmm. and he was working for TT and that had been bought by a Japanese company, by Sumitomo. And I think because of the double counting in terms of headcount... Um, even though he was a real talent, he, he he wasn't needed. So he was looking for something to do. I was looking for something to do. Mm. I think it's fair to say that I needed a bit of um, resuscitation of my career, and he did. So we both had one or two chips on our shoulders, and <laughs> the two two came together, and we said, "Look, we've made some mistakes, but but we're happy to learn from those mistakes and mm. and, and come back a bit stronger." And what was that? What was that like? Kind of pitching to your your early investors then? Were they were they a bit wary or? I think I'm sure you've got lots of good contacts. Yeah, I think some of them were wary. Um, but, you know, generally, I think a year a year and a half out for a lot of managers is a, a really, really good thing. And um, I hadn't realized when I left Polar how how exhausting it is after 20 years doing the same job. And yeah. I, 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 I took, you know, six months of doing absolutely nothing and just, just swimming and, um, you know, spending time with my family. And, and actually, I think 
it is now a pretty crucial thing for a lot of fund managers to do if they can afford to do that is is you know time wise is to to have that period out because i think you know i did a lot of reading mm. uh, and just stepped away from the whole industry so it was it was very nice yeah and just you know coming on to the funds approach i mean we we've we've discussed it already really you're talking about mm. the importance of growth at a reasonable price and mm. maybe kind of you know marrying some of the principles of value and growth investing yeah i mean is it fair to say you know in the portfolio today the value element is is winning a bit i mean looking at the kind of holdings you've got top holding it you know is bank of kyoto yeah. and i think you know you, your portfolio trades at quite a quite a discount you know trades at um a big discount, discount to book. book value and a discount to the market. So yeah. it's a bit more on the value end. Is that right? Yeah. I think if you go back to the early days of Martin Curry, mm. um, Michael Thomas, my boss there, always used to have a sort of um, a motto, which was like, what we do if the market falls 10% is we go down about seven. And if the market goes up 10, we go up somewhere between eight and 11. And, and over time, that wins a lot of plaudits and a lot of performance. And I think that's been very much my philosophy, which is to adapt a little bit to the GARP, mm. but not to change anything too dramatically. For instance, if you looked at kind of style research, if you looked at a photo of where I was when I left, you probably find the, the, the value bars in style analytics would have been right at the top mm. and the growth bars would have been fairly, um, uh, fairly pronounced downwards. And I think with David's introduction, the value side has continued to be pretty important, but a little bit less important. And the growth uh, element is now kind of flat. We're not, un, you know, we're not massively overweight growth. We're not massively underweight growth. Um, we've got a small tilt on the downside to growth, but you know, David has had a pretty profound impact on yeah. a number of areas, particularly technology, which is an area that I don't feel that comfortable in. Technology, software, these are you know, areas that he's very, very strong in. Mm. And of course, you know, paying a lot of detail as a value manager to things like PEs and EV in the tech space is not necessarily, and, and software not necessarily the, the right approach. Okay. And, you know, performance has been good since the launch in, in February 2021. You know, the figures I've got here, this is in yen terms, maybe we'll come on to the yen okay. in a bit, yeah. uh, you know, up about uh, 66% uh, to the end of July versus, you know, the sector, the Morningstar sector, up about twenty four and a half percent. So you've smashed your peers, basically. I mean, in a nutshell, what do you think has driven that strong performance? I, th I think about eighty percent of it has come from stock selection, mm. and probably twenty percent from asset allocation. Uh, we're not really allowed to talk about any benchmarks because we don't don't pay for those. But um, okay. I would say that uh, stock picking has been very good, and we've probably had a less of a focus uh, on the macro top-down view than historically I would have done in uh, the last five years. We've, we've very much focused on the bottom-up and paid less attention to macro drivers. So we just really focused on the individual companies. And I think that is kind of, again, probably what one was doing very well at Martin Curry and Schroeder's and, mm. and, and Polar, for, certainly for the first 13 years. And then, you know, during Arbonomics, the macro side, um, you know, was so important that there was a danger for managers, and I talk talk in general, uh, you know, got a little bit um, skewed by um, the three arrows and how important they were in determining stock selection. So, you know, if the yen weakens from 80 to 140, it has a very profound impact on earnings, obviously, fiscal policy and monetary policy. Um, and I paid a lot less attention to that, a lot less 
attention to sort of global interest rates, to um, to Japanese um, economic developments, and just focused on individual situations. And, yeah. and particularly from a corporate governance perspective, um, a lot of the companies we own stand at very big discounts to book, have a lot of cash, a lot of unrealized gains on real estate, and there's a lot of activism taking place within those stocks. Okay. Uh, and, and that, is, I think, has, has served us very well. Um, but I give you one example of a company that David introduced to me, which was yeah. a tremendous uh, performer, but it didn't really fall into my category, a company called Life Drink, which he introduced a water bottler, very, a water and tea bottler. And it came to the market on a PE of about 10 times and it derated, the shares fell about 20% um, to about eight times. And it was trading already on about three times book because it's just beginning to build its equity. It's um, it's a relatively new company that was resuscitated by a private equity group. Um, but it, we, we've made three times our money in that company and it's now trading still on 15 times earnings, but it's about four times book. But we've continued to hold it. It's continued to deliver very good earnings. It's raised its prices um, across its range of um, sparkling and, and still water offerings and, and tea offerings. And it's made an, a, a very good acquisition as expanding its capacity. And that's a good example where I've been able to fuse David's GARP, which probably historically I wouldn't have been so keen on, and said, look, you know, I'm happy to pay that price to book. Because the overall price to book for the fund, I think, is on 0.8, and the market is 1.2. So if we're paying for a 2% position or a 3% position four, four times book, it's not that exorbitant in, yeah. in the context of the average of the portfolio. Okay. And basically, you're still feeling very optimistic about the portfolio today, or? Yeah, I, I, look, I, I, I think the upside is somewhat less than it was two and a half years ago. Yeah. But if you were to take the 50% of the market that trades below book and you were to push those back towards book value, the Nikkei would be at 42 to 44,000. I don't think that's going to happen overnight. But I think if you took a three to four year view, it's not impossible to, to see the previous highs of the Nikkei taken out. And that technically, I think, would be an incredibly bullish sign for the market if you were to take out the previous highs. Yeah, okay. Well, I suppose on, on that point, I mean, um, you know, Japan does face some well-known economic challenges, mm. probably the, you know, the most severe aging population in the world, mm. and in other things which would kind of limit its domestic prospects. I suppose, you know, in light of some of those long-term concerns, where do you think we are in this shareholder return story that you've been talking about with improving yeah. corporate governments? I mean, is this, a one-year opportunity, three years, or has it got much no, longer? No, I, I, I think it'll run, you know, three to five years. Mm -hmm. um, five years, possibly, possibly a bit longer. Um, because what what I'm finding, Jeremy, with Japanese companies, it's two steps forward, one step back. So for every couple of really good corporate governance reform stories you get, you get one holding that you have or one that you look at that is actually digging its feet in the ground and saying yeah. that we're not prepared to change. So I think this will run. For some time but i think you have to look at the corporate restructuring story and this desire by the tse to get companies above book and raise productivity very much in geopolitical terms about some of the structural changes that are taking place globally deglobalization decarbonization um less reliance on china more reliance on places like vietnam on japan japan's place within what i'd call the greater asia co-prosperity sphere you know, a friend towards the US and the West, um, whereas China is very much in that kind of, as one of our economists refers to, the axis of evil along with Russia. And that's kind of interesting at the moment where you've got, you know, that axis of evil in recession, mm. probably, given the Chinese property bubble, 
and you've got the rest of the West in very meager economic growth. So it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging time, I think, for Japan. So raising that productivity and having clear winners um, within the tech space, within the machinery space, within water purification, all the areas that Japan excels in, robotics, is very, very important. But to run those businesses as very high return on invested capital businesses that are conscious of their cost of capital. Mm. Okay. And um, something else I wanted to touch on, I think you've got some quite interesting consultants who feed you ideas, right? Is that You've got a few interesting yeah. contacts. Yeah, we, we, we've built up a lot of contacts between both of us. And we, we hire four specific consultants who we pay each year. Um, in no particular order, we, we hire um, three Japanese um, who are independent now. Uh, one is 82 um, one is 65 um, and one is 60. Um, the 82-year-old um, is into his 59th year in the Japanese market and he um, promptly announced at the end of December he was having to cut back his working hours from five days a week to four. <laughs> and uh, a, a, a historic step. A historic step and his wife, um, I think, was a little bit perturbed about that because she <laughs> likes to kick him out of the house. But he ferries around for us and um, you know, I think... It, you know, when, when you set up a boutique, you kind of do question whether when you're in your mid-50s or mm. when you're getting into your mid-60s, and in his case, 80s, whether you're too old for this. And I, I do feel that there's been a very big change in the way that people above 45 in the industry are now being treated. I think if you had taken pre-GFC and how, it, how important the experience was, it was important, but generally having kind of young guns between 30 and 45 was, you know, very, very important for, mm. for boutique organizations. I think post GFC and post COVID, that experience is, is really now vitally important. Um, and if you look at our market, as an example, 50% of our market has no analyst coverage. So in some cases, I mean, there's a, a, a copper miner we own. We did an interview with them a year ago um, they wouldn't tell us what their unrealized gains on real estate were. Uh, and I had luckily shuffled through some notes from 1992 and found the unrealized gains that they'd told me in 1992, 31 years ago, was 25 billion yen, which is about $200 billion, to which I then said that's what the figure was from 1992. And he turned around and said, well, actually, it's about the same. 200 so, billion. So, sorry, two hundred million, two hundred million, so right. million dollars of unrealized gains, and the market gotcha. cap of the company is only about at the time was only about four hundred million dollars. So half wow, of the okay. market cap wasn't even accounted for in the balance sheet by those unrealized gains on equity on on real estate. Gosh, okay, in, <laughs> wow. So that that shows the and and, the and a sense of, of history in Japan. As, I mean, I I remember my mm. former boss Michael Thomas saying that sense of history is really really important, Jeremy, in Japan because unlike the West, management doesn't change too much. And when it mm. does change, it tends to be quite um, you know, gradual. gradual and quite a, a, a seamless progression. Um, obviously, if you look at sort of operating margin cycles in America, they, they are relevant. They're not, not nearly as relevant as they are in Japan. Yeah. Um, last couple of questions, uh, James. You, so you, you've now launched uh, the Zenor Japan Equity Income Fund. I yes. suppose, you know, why and what sort of prospective yield are you, you hoping to offer investors? So... It's a very different product. Mm. Uh, it is certainly a much higher value attribute 
product from us than yeah. the original fund. The original fund is this combination of David and I, um, Value and Garp. This is very focused on the reliability of past dividend streams and hopefully the reliability of future solid dividend growth. Um, and the, the, the fund yield at the moment is about 3.2, which compares to just over two for the existing fund. And we plan to pay a, a, a biannual dividend. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it is fair to say that the, the, the process is somewhat different for the two funds. Um, but if you were to say to look at the price earnings ratio of the original fund, it's about 14, whereas the price to earnings ratio of the new fund is 11. Okay. Price to book would be 0.6 versus the uh, existing fund of about 0.8. Mm. So they are, it is somewhat cheaper and it is playing a really pure play on corporate governance. Whereas I would say our existing fund gives you some of the corporate governance story. It gives you some GARP. It um, is not necessarily focused on you know, one driver. But I think this is a, a clear play on corporate governance reform, capital allocation reform, which will enable companies to buy back shares to increase dividend um, coverage, uh, well, so increase uh, dividend payout ratios. And um, it, it's a very interesting area. The fund is a lot smaller, so it can go a lot more micro cap at the moment yeah. as well. Okay. I suppose last question, macro one. The yen's weakness has been really dramatic. Um, so yeah. much so, I checked, and actually, investors in sterling investors in your fund would have received about half the return than yeah. if they were yen investors yeah. in Japan since launch. Yeah. We'd said something. I suppose you know. Firstly, what, what what do you make of that? And secondly, as an equity investor, I mean, do, do you care? Or yeah, obviously, obviously, we are, we are very focused. We're very keen at Zenor not to launch a head share class. We 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 find that. Um, you know, we, we don't have a lot of demand for that, ironically. I think those who have invested in Japan ultimately share our view, which is the yen is a structurally massively undervalued currency at the moment. And it's driven wholly by, for me, carry trade, speculation, and um, the interest rate differential. But I think when that changes and when we see US interest rates beginning to peak out, which may be a little bit more time, um, but when we look at maybe an improving current account surplus in Japan, uh, and we look at PPP, which probably uh, we suspect Japan should be trading at roughly 125, um, then I, I see every signs that we are in the exact inverse of where we are, where we were in 2012. And actually, at the time, my partner, um, Gerard Corley, and, and I were managing a, a segregated mandate, um, and we were hedged in that wrongly when the currency went from 100 down to 80 and you know we buckled or i buckled at the last minute and we closed out that hedge at 80 and i i feel it's almost the mirror image of that at the moment mm. where you know the currency is at uh, 145 we know the bank of japan will probably intervene we know that japan may have more of an inflation problem than the markets actually make out and you know gauging individuals' inflationary expectations is very difficult for a central banker mm. uh, to, um, you know, to come to come to that conclusion as, 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 as to when the pendulum will swing. But I see every signs that wage inflation is, is more set in in Japan. And obviously, as the currency depreciates further, imported inflation will continue to be a problem. And I think certainly the Japan uh, the Bank of Japan's 2% uh, target is going to pr prove to be way off this year, be close mm. to three. Uh, so watch this space. I don't know what the catalyst will be, but all I can say is when I was managing the Schroeder Japan Growth Fund in 98, 
a lot of my competitors were hedged. I think this was August 98. And the currency moved 20% in a day. Wow. Uh, and it can happen. Yeah. But obviously, who okay. knows when. Well, as you said, watch this space. Watch this space. That's all we've got time for, sadly, today. Thank James, you, Jeremy. Thank you very much for coming in. And, and great to meet you again to speak more. It's been great to speak. Thank, thank you. you. And last thing to say is thanks very much, uh, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Please look out for more episodes soon. <laughs>